Hello and welcome to Philosophy as a Way of Life. I'm your host, Massimo Filucci from the City College of New York. And with me is my co-host, as usual, Rob Coulter from the University of Wyoming. Hi, Rob. How are you? I'm good, Massimo. How are you? Looking forward to today. Yeah, this should be fun. As it turns out, the introduction for our guest is going to be very short. It's me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, my new book, The Quest for Character. So, And of course, uh, Rob is going to be doing asking the questions, and I'll try to give my best answer. So, Rob, over to you. Yeah, sure. So I'm excited to be able to talk about your new book. Um, and then just sort of by way of our usual practice of getting um, questions from the audience. Um, as things goes along, if people who are listening want to ask questions, please direct your questions to me and not to Massimo so that I can um, I can ask him the questions. Um, you know, we've got it set it up set up that way so only the two of us can talk because otherwise sometimes we have problems. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, of course. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, so where to start, right? So um, I do want to you start. Tell by, me. <laughs> well, I'm going to start off by saying, uh, giving the um, sort of standard philosopher's compliment. Um, the book got me thinking a lot. And, and uh, I had to think Good. through some issues. And um, uh, I don't agree with everything. We'll talk about that. But, um, uh, but uh, I think it's an interesting project. So um, maybe we'll just start with some kind of softball questions, and and if you could explain for those of us, maybe who haven't read it yet, what's the main point of the quest for character? What the story of Socrates and Alcibiades teaches us about our search for good leaders? Well, part of the key is in the in the, in the subtitle. In fact, um, it's about the, the original idea for the book was to write an entire book on on Socrates and Alcibiades, actually, because and the reason for that is because the figure of Alcibiades has always fascinated me. It's it's one of those um, bizarre characters that I'm surprised nobody's made a movie uh, about his life. Right? He, he's uh, uh, he was impossibly handsome, uber rich. Uh, you know, dashing and and brave and and you know all sorts of things, and he wanted to be naturally the leader of Athens. Uh, and we're talking about right at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War. Yeah. And so he goes and has essentially a informal job interview with Socrates, and Socrates says, um, "So let's see here if you, if you got what what it takes to be the leader of of Athens." And it turns out pretty quickly that, in fact, at least according to Socrates, Alcibiades does not have what it takes. And why is that? Well, because he's counting, first of all, on assets such as being rich and, and descending from a noble family, not on things like virtue and character and stuff like that. Um, and it becomes also increasingly clear during the dialogue, this is the Alcibiades one or mayor, which is attributed to Plato, although there is discussion whether actually yep. Plato wrote it or not. Yep. And uh, uh, it also becomes clear during the conversation that Alcibiades simply has the wrong priorities. He's into this for self-aggrandizing reasons. He's affected by hubris. I mean, you, you, you name it. And so at some point, Socrates says to Alcibiades, and I, and I quote, then alas, Alcibiades, what a condition you suffer from. I hesitate to name it, but it must be said. 
you are wedded to stupidity, best of men, of the most extreme sort, as the argument accuses you and you accuse yourself. So this is why you are living into the affairs of the city before you've been educated. Like, mm-hmm. ouch, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is your best friend telling you that sort of stuff, that you, you're wedded to stupidity, best of men. So that's the beginning. Uh, it's actually in the second chapter of the book, but that was the beginning of the idea. I was fascinated by the relationship between character and leadership. Okay. And that is what a lot of the book is about. It's, it's about the relationship, more generally speaking, between ethics and politics. But then, of course, character is not just about <coughs> leaders. It's also about us. And so the last part of the book is about character more generally and, and what can we do in order to improve our character, assuming that we are so inclined. Right. So the character of Alcibiades is, is certainly, as you point out, a rather colorful character in um in our sources right all of them including um thucydides for example right uh still pretty colorful there and and all of that um yeah and thucydides in fact was one of my main main sources i mean i reread that's right the easter the peloponnesian war and thucydides knew alcibiades personally he knew a lot of the characters involved in the peloponnesian war personally because he well as it turns out at some point he was a general that's right. He was he was one of the characters until he screwed up and got exactly <laughs> right. Like, like he started writing about it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Good. So that tells me a little bit something about Alci- uh, about why you chose Alcibiades. But um, some of the other characters you choose are, um, for example, right? You talk about Plato and the various tyrants of Syracuse, and mm-hmm. you talk about Aristotle and Alexander. And you also talk about Seneca and Nero, right? So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how those case studies, you call them, uh, connect to the Alcibiades and Socrates story. Yeah, so the the idea eventually evolved into, okay, why don't we take a look at uh, case studies in antiquity, in in Greco-Roman antiquity, of two situations. One, philosophers trying to train a leader let's say Seneca and Nero, for instance, or Plato and the two Dionysus, Uh, and contrast that to a situation where the leader himself is, in fact, already interested in practicing philosophy. The obvious example there being Marcus Aurelius, but also, you know, Cato the Younger, Cicero, things like that. And I wonder, you know, whether there is some, there was something that, that we could learn from from the contrast between those two, those two cases. It turns out, however, also that if we look at um, what Xenophon says about Socrates in uh, the Memorabilia, Socrates himself didn't do, uh, didn't advise just uh, Alcibiades. There are actually several other examples. At one point, he advises Glaucon, who was uh, Plato's brother, not to get into politics as well, uh, just like he says to Alcibiades. And unlike Alcibiades, Glaucon actually listens to Socrates. And we're told later on in the Republic, uh, in Plato's Republic, that uh, he becomes a good musician. Uh, Socrates also advises Carmides, who was Glaucon's son, so a few years later. And this time he tells it, it goes the other way. Glaucon doesn't want, sorry, Carmides doesn't want to go into politics. And Socrates says, I think you really should do that sort of thing. You, you, you're going to be good at it. He does. Carmides does follow Socrates' advice. Unfortunately, it doesn't go very well because, uh, he, unfortunately for him, he happens to serve under the 30 tyrants after the end right. of the 
Peloponnesian War. But nevertheless, that's an example where Socrates actually says, yeah, yeah, you should definitely do that. And then one more from, from Xenophon. Uh, there is this character named Eutydemus who also uh, goes to Socrates and he says, yeah, I wanna, I'm going to become the you know, leader in Athens, blah, blah, blah. And, and Socrates, again, shows him very quickly that maybe you shouldn't do that because he's not he's not ready and Eutydemus again listens to Socrates and becomes actually a student and and close uh, acquaintance you know close close friend of, of Socrates so there is actually a number of examples that you can right. uh, dig out several of which involve Socrates himself right yeah so maybe that's an opportunity to um kind of um drill down on a couple of ideas there. And and so one is, I've got a few quibbles about your characterization of Socrates, but that's connected to this other question that I want to try to bring out. So let me, let me just start with, I'll start with my quibbles, I guess. And, but I think it's not, I don't think it's just quibbles. I think it has something to do with your project, right? In that, um, so you say at a couple points, for example, that, well, you discuss that um, Socrates um, was advised by the Oracle through his friend Chirophon that um, he was the wisest, right? And you contrast Plato's version of that to Xenophon's. Yeah. Right? Um, but I think they actually are the same. Um, if you look carefully at Plato's account, right, in the Apology, what Chirophon tells Socrates is that the um, the oracles told Chirophon that no one is wiser than Socrates, not that he was wisest, as all, wisest of all, which is mm -hmm. consonant with, with the version in Xenophon, although it's a bit more elaborate. It's still no one is better than. Yeah. Right. Right. And um, Socrates, of course, is also well known for saying that he knows nothing or at least no, doesn't know anything important. Right. right? Um, you know, which is so patently not true. <laughs> well, so I, I actually want to challenge you on that point. <laughs> okay, right? go for it. Right. Um, and 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 because Socrates, I mean, he does say he knows some things, right? He allows that he knows some things, and and he allows that he uh, certainly knows how to argue with right. people. For example, he knows he knows how to draw conclusions from evidence and things like that. But what he says he doesn't know is what justice is or what, uh, yeah. you know, what goodness is or any of these things, right? And so if you look at, and I think Xenophon's a little wafflier than this than Plato, but um, mostly what Socrates does is he asks other people what they think. Yeah. And if you think about that in the context of, one, no one is wiser than Socrates, and two, he claims he doesn't know anything important, like these big moral claims, right? Then that raises another challenge, I think, in that how could Socrates even think he's teaching or advising anybody, right? And right. so you talk about the idea about whether virtue is teachable, and you talk about the Platonic dialogues, the Mino and the Protagoras. Um, but I think... One of the things that that he that Plato in those dialogues has Socrates playing around with, right? So there's always the question of what's Plato and what's Socrates. Of and, course, right. and and I and I I'm just gonna when I say Socrates, I mean the Socrates found in the texts, right? Yes. For now, right. um, 
what Socrates is playing around with in, in those cases, especially in the Mino, is what does teaching mean? Mm -hmm. Right. So when Mino asked him, can virtue be taught? What does he have in mind? Well, and one of the things you point out is that Mino, the character in that dialogue, claims he's heard lots of speeches and given lots of speeches. Right. right. And, and that seems to be the sort of model of teaching that he has in mind, namely that somebody who knows something or has information somehow imparts that information to me. Yeah. And if that's teaching, then I think it's fair to say that Socrates and the dialogue end up saying, no, that's, you can't teach virtue like that. Right. Right. But there's another sort of teaching that involves, um, that gets played around with quite a bit. And you mentioned it in uh, really quickly, right? This theory of recollection stuff. Um, but the example there is designed to show that when questioned in the right way, we can inquire together Correct. into these ideas, right? And shortly after all that recollection stuff, I just want to read this passage real quick, if I can find it. Yeah, there it is. Um, and if anybody wants to reference it, it's at 86B of Plato's Dialogue to Mino. Mm -hmm. And Socrates, well, Mino says, somehow I think that what you say is right, right? So he apparently is convinced at this point. Socrates responds, I think so too, Mino. I do not consist, I, sorry, I do not insist that my argument is right in all other respects, but I contend at all costs, both in word and deed, as far as I could, that we, that we will be better men, braver and less idle, if we believe that one must search for the things one does not know, rather than if we believe that it's not possible to find out what we do not know and that we must not look for it. Right. Right. So, there's two models of teaching, right? One is if the the idea that you know I, for example, want to teach you, for example, about something, and I that I know and I tell you about it, and you somehow absorb it. Right. Well, I mean, I think Socrates and Plato are, and even Xenophon's version are pretty clear that no, that's not what goes on in this sort no, of stuff. Clearly, right? yes, that's right? right. I agree. But if by uh, by teaching, you mean something like shared inquiry into how to do something. Right. Then I think there's a lot of that going on, right? Um, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, as you point out, right? Um, yes. Um, so I wonder if that affects how we might think about this question about whether virtue can be taught and what it means to teach someone to be a better person. Do you, do you get my question? Yes. Um, <coughs> it's a complicated one, right? So yeah. for one thing, I agree with what you said so far, but I would put an additional twist okay. to it. And that is, there is a third way, I think, in which we can conceive teaching. And I think it is one way in which Socrates really does do it. And that is um, leading people by way of questioning. So, so the, the, the contrast you made so far is one, the classical teacher, I give a lecture, I have knowledge, yeah, I give yeah. a lecture, I just put out knowledge for people to absorb, right? That's clearly not what Socrates is doing. Right. Um, there's, there's no question about that. The other one is the midwifery kind of model, 
-hmm. which is similar to what you were were saying, mm -hmm. right? So it's a it's a co-inquiry. You know, I don't know shit, you don't know shit, but maybe the two of us together can work out this thing. I don't believe, although that is what Socrates is often uh, presented in doing, I don't believe that that's what he's doing. I think that Socrates is leading people ah. to a certain answer. He knows where he wants to go, at least in some cases. The minnow is one example, for instance. I mean, yes, uh, uh what's his name plato plato tells us that you know he uses that example as uh, uh to put forth this idea of recollect knowledge of as, as recollection and all that sort yeah. of stuff but it's pretty clear to us what is going on there the the slave who all of a sudden is able to come up with you know mathematical proof or geometrical proof it's not that he's recollecting it from a previous life is that that yeah, he's yeah. a smart boy and Socrates yeah, yeah. is, you know, help nudging him along and he arrives at the, at the conclusion. So in other words, Socrates knows exactly where he wants to go at that, in that particular example. In other examples, he's more open-minded, it's more open-ended. It, it varies. And I actually would suggest that that is what a good teacher does. In some cases, you have a pretty good idea where you want to lead your students, at least not, mm. in, not necessarily in terms of an answer, but at least in the, in the, in the, direction general direction of where certain answers might be found right. and you do it by instead of telling them by nudging them there by by questioning and well, but what do you think about that i mean the classic example there there i think is utifro right? the, the, yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Right. Well, in, well well okay but so here's yeah. here's a consequence of that view sure that makes socrates a liar um well, that's a that's a heavy uh, no, word. I, I, <laughs> no, I'm I'm being quite serious, right? Because he well, says he doesn't know these sorts of things, sure. and so the question is, if he doesn't know these sorts of things, how could he be leading him to someplace in a, in in this way, right? Yeah. Okay. So so if if he doesn't know these things, of course that rules out the the old sage on the stage picture, right? Yes. Um. But if he already has the answers to these questions, and then he's just like, what, deceitfully leading them along? Yep, I th I think that's what he's doing. So you so you think Socrates is a liar? Yeah, I think he's a liar for a good reason. Um, but I think he's he's a liar. <laughs> I mean, I was told early on in my career that teaching is lying by different degrees. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> um, depending on you know where how how much you want to engage you know, your your students and in which in which direction. Look, the word liar, of course, is the kind of shocking, and so it's like, whoa, yeah, yeah, yeah. wait a minute, Socrates is a liar. Um, but there are some cases where, especially especially in Xenophon, mm -hmm. where First of all, there are some instances in Xenophon where Socrates just comes out and says, you should do this or yeah, you should yeah, do that, a handful, or, yeah. right? So so there are clear cases where he very clearly knows where he wants to go and he just brings people there, period. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of other cases, which I think you can find both in Plato and in Xenophon, but they're more clear in Xenophon, uh, it's obvious that, that you know what is sometimes referred to as Socratic irony yeah, um, yeah. it's it's really Socrates sarcasm <laughs> and it's it's he's obviously using that as a way to send the message mm. uh, at least to a potential audience that you know wink wink yeah. I know where I'm going with this and again a classic example is the Utifro, right where where 
uh, Utifro is so full of himself because he says that he, it, it is his, his business to know what the gods want mm -hmm. and, and what is pious and what is moral and all that sort of stuff. And Socrates says, oh my gosh, really? Tell me, please, because I want to learn. So that way, you know, I'm going to become a better person. And then it turns out, of course, that in a matter of minutes, Socrates yeah. shows that Utifro doesn't know crap about what he's talking about. Right. Yeah, but I don't think... Yeah, so so this I don't want to get too far afield from what's going on sure. in the book, but um, but I think um, I think I'm inclined to say maybe we're going to have to agree to disagree on this. Sure, point. we've done and, that and, before. Yeah, right, and maybe maybe we'll discuss this in more detail um, in, in Rome or something. But yeah, um, uh, yeah so over a Chianti, perhaps yeah, or at least some pasta. <laughs> or um, um, yeah, so so I don't. Yeah, I'm not convinced, and I think, I think um, understanding Socrates as not actually knowing where he's going, especially in the cases um, you're talking about, tells us. I think there's a way to sort of understand more of what he's doing, rather than to just um, say he's faking it. But but um, before leaving that particular topic, I, I think it would be yeah. interesting to talk about one of the things you did bring up, which is the implication of these for the notion that virtue can be taught. Right. Right. Because that's crucial. And as you said, the, right. the book actually starts out with <coughs> that yeah. very question. And Socrates himself is ambivalent about it, because in some cases he says, no, I don't think. I don't think he's ambivalent be because mm. he's, he's clear that it can't be taught in that first way we were talking about. Okay, fine, F fair enough. Yeah, but I'll... but but we can yeah. we can teach it in this other way, right? Where it's shared inquiry and we're going mm -hmm. along, right? Mm -hmm. um, so but so I, I like don't think the, he's ambivalent. I think in one section he's talking about teaching in one way, and another uh, he's talking about it in the other way. But that again, would involve textual. Yes, textual exegesis. Um, yeah. But again, so we might need to disagree on that one. However, the, the what what I found actually intriguing is Protagoras. An right. analysis of how to teach virtue because he makes an analogy with a learning a musical instrument or teaching yes. a musical instrument, right? Right. So he says, you know, imagine he imagines this this thought experiment. He says to Socrates at some point, look, imagine that the, the welfare and survive very survival of our city depending on, on people you know learning to play the flute what would, what do you think is going to happen at that point? Well like we're going to put a lot of effort into teaching yeah. people how to to learn the, the, to play the flute. So that makes you think about a direct analogy between virtue and music playing in meaning that they're both techniques. They're both, yeah, 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 yeah. right? Yeah. They're both skills. Exactly. And now the question is, well, how do you teach music, right? Well, I think there are three components, ideally. One, you do need a little bit of theory, it's 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 helpful if you know the notations and if you know how the notes relate to each other you know a little, little bit you don't have to be sort of theoretical you know high level anything but it's, it would be like like epictetus telling you that you don't need the kind of you know logic chopping that chrysippus was doing a lot of the times but you better know a little bit about logic because otherwise you cannot even argue that you don't need it right that sort of stuff so a little bit of theory Ideally, a good teacher, why? Well, because a good teacher is going to look at your form, is going to look at your mistakes, it's going to correct and say, you know, give suggestions, or maybe you can do this, maybe you can do that. And then mostly practice, 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 practice. Right, right. Every day, 
constantly practicing. So if you look at virtue that way, then I think it becomes far more understandable how, in fact, virtue can be taught and yeah. learned. I, right? yeah. yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and um, you know, that was that was another place I was thinking we could go. Um, yeah, so technique, cr uh, craft or skill analogy right. is the right thing, right? Which, of course, then also tells us something about um, what sort of conception of knowing. And I, I say conception of knowing as opposed to theory of knowledge um <laughs> right um in the case of socrates for a reason but um you know not all knowing is knowing information no not right. and so not all teaching can be information transfer right yeah, that's right so or at so, least not in the sense of verbal uh you know sort of uh, well i'm not sure it's even information everything that one does with a skill right unfortunately i lost that discussion with a physicist colleague of mine once because he argued that the, with certain definitions of information pretty much everything is information. well yeah you but you know if we redefine states. our starting points whenever yeah. we want we can get right. whatever conclusions we want right yes but, that's right <laughs> but uh, yeah so i remain unconvinced on that point too so but Fair uh, we have we haven't had that argument yeah. um okay great um i want to pause for just a second to remind if everybody have if anybody has questions uh, they'd like to ask, please uh, write them to me and, and um, you know, in the chat. Massimo yeah. and I can sort of get in the, yeah, in the chat. And, and as we get into the weeds, maybe you can help us back out a little bit uh, <laughs> with appropriately pointed questions. Um, okay. Right. So um, the next thing I want to ask about and, and, one of the things I'm worried about is there's a couple points involving Socrates and his charges of uh, something like atheism or not believing in the gods of the city. Right. Impiety. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, in his trial. And I wanted to sort of raise a point about the conception of religion in for the Greeks. Yeah. Right. Um, and it seems as though you know, so so you pointed to the fact that Socrates is having to talk about the God quite a bit, right? And there's also cases where he talks about by the God, by the dog, God of the Egyptians, right? Um, right, and he refers to things that aren't sort of what we think of as the standard Greek mythology of Homer and Hesiod, for example, right? Correct. And you suggest that maybe that's part of a kernel of truth of him not believing. In the gods of the city, or or believing in the wrong gods. Um, but so this is like not a major objection or anything like that. But I think it's something worth thinking about when we think about Socrates's charges. Is it's not at all obvious that the ancient Athenians thought about religion in the way that we tend to, right? So, yeah. So no, for in fact, us, they probably didn't. That's yeah, right. they probably. I think. I think there's a good reason to think they didn't. Right? right. So we, when we think about religion and religious belief, it's pretty easy for us to say it's a matter of what someone believes. Right. Mm -hmm. You're you're a Christian if you have certain beliefs about a monotheistic God and 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 Jesus and things like that. Right. You're yeah. you're a Muslim if you have other beliefs about that monotheistic God that overlap and different beliefs about Jesus and stuff like that. Right. But it's not at all clear, I think, and I think there's good reason to think it's not the case, 
that that's the primary way the ancient Greeks thought about religion. Um, right? Rather, another way to think about religion is as a sort of civic structuring practice. Yeah. Right? So um, the problem wasn't then that Socrates talked about these gods in these different ways. And there, I think there's a good amount of evidence that nobody really cared about that, uh, <laughs> about what you believed or didn't believe, right? Um, rather, they cared about what practices you engaged in or, or didn't engage in. And perhaps maybe this is the way into understanding Socrates, what practices you disrupted. Yeah. Right? So, and this is related to another point you make about uh, the corrupting the youth bit, right? Is, um, you know, Socrates, of course, corrupted the youth in that he, I think you put it, tells the youth of the city that the their leaders are stupid and don't know what they're doing, paraphrasing mm -hmm. somewhat, right? right? Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure he tells them that, but I think there's, I think it's pretty plausible to think he shows them that they are by his conversations with them and so on, right? So, I wonder, though, if your understanding of Socrates' disruption would be affected by reconceiving his relationship to religion and religious practices as not something being about what he believes, but rather about what he does or doesn't do or how he affects other people and what yeah. they do and don't do. Well, to some to some extent, um, but I don't think that much because the way I think about it, the two charges of impiety and corruption of the youth are actually related. They're not they're not independent, and so the way in which right. you're looking right, so the way in which you're looking at it would be would go into that direction essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Socrates is undermining the authorities in the city by doing or talking or not doing or not talking about about certain things in certain in certain ways so and by the way in some cases socrates actually explicitly says that the leaders of the city are have are a, a, prob a problematic that they you know um uh, especially sure. again and, in xenophon especially yeah yeah more so in xenophon than plato and and, right. and even in plato he yeah, he certainly infers or allows the inference to be made exactly. pretty easily, yeah. very, very, very easily. So, yeah. so if that is the case, uh, then, then yes, the the two charges become much more closely related mm -hmm. and and intertwined, which I think makes actually more sense. Mm -hmm. But even if uh, one thinks uh, in terms of beliefs, and you know, after all, that is a little bit of an open question, I and mean, we don't we don't really have that much, that that good of an understanding of the Greek and the Roman approach to religion. I think you're you're correct that a number of historians would say that religion, both in Greece and Rome, had certainly had a different kind of connotation mm -hmm. uh, and a different role, social role, than it did it, that it does. Uh, and did already at the time in the in the context of monotheistic Abrahamic faiths, right? Yeah. One of the one of the reasons, famously, the Romans just didn't get the Jews, yeah, was because like what what are you guys talking about? Yeah, you <laughs> that that's fine. That's your problem, uh, right. not an issue. So long as you also worship the emperor uh, and pay taxes, of course, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. And so there was this kind of fundamental misunderstanding. That right. uh, highlights uh, or, or reinforces, I think, this this notion that um, for the Greco-Romans religion was a different thing. But there's also this thing that you know 
uh, Xenophon himself goes into quite a bit of detail in his own defense of Socrates, both in the memorabilia and, of course, most most particularly in the Apology, because he mm-hmm. did write a thing called the Apology, yep. just like Plato did. And there he goes at length to to say, no, Socrates did engage in sacrifices. No, no, no. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, so, which goes again toward the the notion of sort of a social engagement, uh, and that now when he was talking about his daemon, he wasn't saying anything that that was too strange that other people right. believe that sort of stuff. So Xenophon seems to, in a sense, cover both aspects of it. He talks about belief when he, when he talks about the daemon, but he also talks explicitly about social uh, practices, where he repeats over and over that Socrates. Uh, sacrifice to the gods of the city, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, but I, I do like the idea that the two charges were in fact related. Yeah, um, I think it's I think it's pretty tight, right? I yeah. mean, because it's not just a, it's not just the leaders of the city, right? That Socrates is disrupting the the young the youths um, relation to, right? It's in their own families, right? Uh, you know, you hang around Socrates and you watch him refute everybody. And I always think of um, my students at the university, right? You know, what do they do when they go home for their first Christmas break after they've taken a philosophy class? And, um, and uh, you know, they go home and they argue with their parents, right? I think, exactly. of, my own, <laughs> I think of my own case, right? Um, at some point, I went home for a Christmas holiday and had some argument, a po- political argument with my own father, and I told him, <laughs> I told him he was blinded by his McCarthyist upbringing. There you um, go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for those of us of a certain age, that <laughs> probably yeah. makes some sense. That makes sense. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, we didn't talk for a while after that, right? So, I, I mean, and it turns out that that I think there's a lot of overlap here, right? Because the young young men hanging around with Socrates in the Agora, listening to him argue with and refute people all the time. We're also the kids of the people who were the leaders in a lot of cases, right? That's right. So, so he's disrupting sort of social practices in multiple ways, in families, in the political structure, and things like that. Um, less than I think. I think, and I also think it's fair, right? The, the point you made about Xenophon to say that it's not as though it's one or the other exclusively belief or practice, right? I think the two of them uh, fit together. Yeah, I, I mean, um, there there is pretty clear examples, as you were saying, that uh, he's he's undermining authority by yeah. you know by by pushing the kids, <laughs> the new generation, to think of that one way or another. This came to my mind very clearly recently when I was watching a documentary called Young Plato that just came yes. out. It's in the theaters now, and it is set in. Belfast in Northern Ireland. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm aware right? of it. And uh, and it's 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 about it, the principle of an elementary school that teaches philosophy, practical philosophy, what we would call practical philosophy, to the kids. And and it, you know we're in Northern Ireland, so the background is you know history of violence, but there's also the usual problems that kids at that age have, you know, bullying, that sort of that sort of thing. And um, although the principal tries to teach 
philosophers across the spectrum he ends up over and over in you know going to either socrates or the stoics for obvious for what we would think are pretty obvious <coughs> reasons now yeah. there is one crucial scene so in the background to this what, what i'm telling this story is because often uh i wondered you know why is it that we don't teach in fact virtue or ethics or practical philosophy at a pre-college level. And typically the two major sources of resistance, at least in the United States, to that kind of teaching comes from politicians and from parents. Mm-hmm. And now I, I always thought, okay, what do these two have in common? Well, they're they're authority figures, right? As far as yeah. the kid is concerned. Now there is this scene in Young Plato where the uh one of the kids is distraught because uh, the father, I believe, has talked about the fact that, you know, the other guys, I forgot what they were, the Protestants or the, or the or the Catholics, you know, they're bad guys and we need to beat them up and, you know, it's, violence is necessary, that sort of stuff. And the principal looks at the kid and says, okay, now I'm going to teach you how to argue with your father. no no wonder there is going to be resistance um to that sort of thing right and and, um that's that's exactly what socrates was doing at the time yeah yeah yeah. i think that's totally fair i think that's um so uh, people are asking questions in the chat both to me and you do do you have one that you want to start out Uh, i don't i don't have any actually okay then i'll start with one um that has been asked by Eric. Given the story of Alcibiades as well as the others, what do you think of the nature versus nurture debate when it comes to having or being receptive to learning and becoming one of good character? That's a good question. That the, the general answer to the nature nurture question is both. <laughs> right. Uh, so I as an evolutionary biologist, that was my field of research. I was I was studying nature nurture, although not in humans. And pretty much for every characteristic in almost every species that I studied, the answer was always, always turned out to be a very complicated interaction between the two. And therefore, sort of, I think that the entire project of separate, trying to separate nature and nurture genetic influences from environmental influences is entirely hopeless. In fact, open little parentheses here, uh, not only that project might be hopeless, but it may be, in fact, conceptually misguided a uh, biologist who had a big influence on me was Richard Lewontin, who was a uh, geneticist at Harvard. Mm, and he said yeah. once uh, to me that to try to disentangle the, the effects of the genes from the effects of, of the environment is something like this. Imagine that you're building, you see somebody building a house and it had, and, he, and he puts down a layer of bricks and then lime and then bricks and then lime and then bricks and then lime now by by the time he's done you can meaningfully ask the question how much of the weight of the house is bricks and how much is lime but that tells you exactly nothing about how to build a house because it's only in the pattern of interactions it's not about you know the quantitative uh you know separation of the two so i think i think of the gene gene environment or nature nurture issue in the same in the same way but again, I want to go back to Protagoras. I think Protagoras really got a good thing going there when he was talking, when he was making the analogy with music. So, what do we think and what do we know about music? Certainly, we know that some people are very talented from when they're very, very young. Whether there is that's genetic or early development doesn't matter. They're very, 
you know, they're five years old that play instrument, musical instruments much better than I could ever possibly manage, right? Um, but we also know that everybody can learn to play a musical instrument. I mean, I guess unless you're completely tone, tone deaf, in which case you actually have a physiological deficiency anyway. So there's a reason why you can't do it. And so I think that it's similar with virtue. That is, some people are probably uh, constitutionally either genetically or early development or combination of both more generous more courageous more temperate etc cetera, etc cetera. and then the more, rest of more us... more generous and courageous or more able to become more correct yes or more okay. more prone to to develop those okay. characteristics as as adults but we also presumably if if the analogy with uh, music is is correct then everybody including those people can improve Mm -hmm. By you know, let's not forget that both Mozart and Beethoven were prodigies, but they both learned also how to become better because of their fathers who were teaching them how, how to to play better. And and so, I think that that's that's where where we are at um, now. In the case specific, of course, of Alcibiades, I mean, we can't tell. We don't know enough about his upbringing. Although there is a chapter in the book where I do talk about Alcibiades as a young man. And there are a couple of telling examples there that his character was probably formed, uh, or at least you could see certain developments in his character pretty early on. There's this wonderful uh, little uh, example of um, he was he was he was playing a straggling with some of his friends. So these are knuckle bones that mm -hmm. you you throw on the on the floor on the pavement, and uh, and then depending on how they come up, you, you score points. Well, at some point, he was playing this, and he had a very good score, but it turns out that the astragaly, the, the knuckle bones, happened to go in the middle of the street, and there was a, a you know cart coming with a horse, and so, you know, that could have messed things around, so Alcibiades jumps in the middle of the streets and just stops the cart uh, from moving forward. That requires courage. Uh, probably not necessarily for a good reason, right? It's like scoring uh, at, a, at a struggle. It's not necessarily why you want to put your life at, at risk, but clearly not everybody would have done that sort of thing. And so uh, there, there are some aspects of character that emerge fairly, fairly early on. We do know that character from a modern psychological perspective is pretty much settled by, by your early 20s, which is not surprising because that's when your brain settles. <laughs> that's, that's where your brain ends, you know, finishes the major part of growth and pretty much everything is, is settled. Now, we also know that doesn't mean you cannot improve after, afterwards, especially if, if you want to improve. Uh, and uh, it doesn't mean, of course, that, um, that so that that's the end of the story in terms of in terms of training. But again, that's very similar to learning languages or learning musical instruments, right? It's much easier to do it when you're young. And it becomes more difficult, more challenging when you're older, you can still do it, if you put a lot of effort, and you really want to do it. Um, but it might it comes much more uh, easily and uh, and and naturally, if you do it before, we've known this for a long time. I mean, the Romans were talking about the age of reason, uh, about seven or eight years old, when when uh, when you start teaching kids to to improve on whatever nature gave them, right? So the the notion that both Cicero and the Stoics have is that nature gives us the beginning of wisdom, and then it's up to reason to 
expand and improve things. Um, the Jesuits uh, have this famous saying, you know, give me a, a child of seven, I'll give you a man of 14. So that, that this notion that there is a crucial window where you can have the most effect, it's it's been well known for centuries, I guess. Yeah. You got we, some more you want to? Yeah, we have another question. Just, just got a few um, <coughs> um, going through. Uh, Dan is asking, do you think Socrates' questioning can be repurposed today in a world with numerous distractions and cognitive biases? We should learn to question ourselves and why we believe in X. Um, yes, the reason I keep writing about the, the Greco-Romans is because I think that a lot of what they were doing and saying in the in the area of ethics and and philosophy as a way of life does apply to us today not so in other areas right i mean if if you wanted to be a good biologist or a good physicist i would not recommend to pick up aristotle uh, it's it's a little bit out of date from that perspective very interesting in in, in terms of the history of science but you know you're not going to find anything about quantum mechanics in there or evolution for that matter. But when it comes to human nature, human psychology, and how to interact with other people, I think the Greco-Romans had very, very good uh, intuitions, many of which have been confirmed or are being confirmed by quantitatively by, by modern science. So uh, can we repurpose the kind of questioning that Socrates was doing? Well, as you heard earlier, uh, Rob and I might disagree on how you actually, on what that kind of questioning was. And therefore, how you re repurpose it any in, in, in the first place. But I think you mentioned a couple of things, uh, Dan, that are clearly germane. One is the numerous distractions that we are all subjected to, uh, you know, social media arguably being the main, the main one, at least in, in recent years. Uh, there is there are some social scientists who are even more pessimist than I am about the effect of social media. On, uh, on societal dialogue and on, on individual psyches. So, you know, there's a, I think there's a book coming out soon by Jonathan Haidt, who is a sociologist at NYU, who argued that the beginning of the end of civilization is this with social media. Now that might be a little, a little too much, um, but people have been warning us about uh, similar issues way before you know, when when the, the major threat was television rather than, than Facebook or, or Twitter. One of my favorite authors from that period is Neil Postman, who was a, a, a sociologist at, um, uh, and political commentator at uh, Columbia University, I believe. And he wrote a number of books, one of which, uh, interesting about this, these topics, one of which is called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And, <laughs> and where he made the, this point that you know, by distracting ourselves with things like, at the time, television and and uh, popular culture, now uh, social media, we disengage from the kind of Socratic dialogue that uh, that might be fundamental for the development of not only personal virtue but societal virtue. That is the virtue at a at a level of you know we we want a certain kind of society that works for the benefit of, of all. So yeah, uh, I think we can certainly repurpose things. Can I pitch in on that too? A yeah. little bit? I, I think, I actually think we do um, repurpose Socratic dialogue in lots of different ways in different areas. So there are movements like the Socrates Cafe movement, mm 
yep where people were trying to do it um in public spaces um there's also a pretty strong movement within um what we might call a, well in the philosophy for children movement where they're trying to introduce socratic techniques of reasoning and questioning uh with kids um actually i helped supervise a, a thesis where they actually tried to introduce socratic type questioning with three-year-olds and it was remarkable the results uh that we saw in that young woman's finishing i think just recently finished a phd in philosophy of education so um yeah i think it happens all the time uh i one point there was cognitive biases and i'm not convinced and maybe some evidence would make me change my mind about this but i'm not convinced that we're susceptible to any more or less cognitive biases than the ancients were i mean i think yeah. if you go back just to these dialogues alcibiades has all sorts of cognitive blind spots and yeah. confirmation bias and all of these things that we talk about, I do think that it, it well, it seems plausible to me that um, things like social media, things like having our phones with us all the time, and so on, maybe give us more opportunities to trip over those cognitive yeah. biases right. than the ancients might have had, and um, and yeah, that's I think the that's problem. Right. I think. I think yeah, that's right. I think what has gotten worse is the number of opportunities and the number of stimuli that might trigger those biases. But I think the biases themselves have always been with us. Yeah. I mean, again, one of my arguments for why we should pay attention to the Greco-Romans or for that matter, to other ancient traditions like Confucianism or Buddhism mm -hmm. or something like that, you know, why are they so re still relevant today? Uh, and the answer there is because we have not, we, human beings have not changed that yeah. much if at all uh you know from from that time i mean if if rob and i were uh, having as a guest today or for the next episode marcus aurelius let's say <laughs> right um so i'm pretty sure that marcus would be stunned by the technology that we're using right he would mm -hmm. look at this thing and and say what you you guys are talking thousands of miles away and you know etc that would be stunning but but once he got over that initial surprise and he actually started listening to what we're talking about and what the conversation is, uh, where the conversation is going, he would have a lot of things to say. He would yeah. recognize yeah. the terms of the conversation. He would he would say, oh, yeah, I had experience of this thing or that thing. And, you know, don't you think that we should be doing it this way or that way? Uh, I, I do think that that's that's the reason why yeah. we're paying attention to the Greco-Romans in this area, as opposed to technology yeah. and, and science. Well, and I'd also yeah. say just one last quick thing, right, sure. is, is, yeah, of course, there were worries about television, but actually there's good evidence that even, even in Plato, up till Plato's time, that they were worried about the cognitive effects of the technology of reading and writing. That's right. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which so, we think is bizarre, but yep, that's right. They were really worried about it uh, in right. a lot of cases, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we have a few more minutes. Did you have any other points that you wanted to bring up before? Yeah, I wanted to take a minute to talk a little bit about some stuff, some of the stuff at the end, right? Um, and and here, this is not me. I put away my critic hat, so uh, I, I just thought it might be worth a little more discussing. There's a, there's, and I think maybe before we actually got started, I mentioned something to you about this idea about the connection between theory and practice. Yeah. Right. Our beliefs about uh, about the way the world works and about the way we work 
and how that relates to us developing our characters and and what that connection is and maybe we could explore that for just a few minutes but huh. right you so you mentioned for example in talk in your chapter on philosophy and politics um that philosophy was the theory and practice of the art of living mm -hmm. right so you use that phrase and 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 similar phrase um in a couple places right and then you say uh in the chapter, it's all about character. In the Platonic Dialogue of Gorgias, we find Socrates arguing that mastering principles is necessary but not sufficient. One also needs some kind of practical training. And I, and I wondered if you could say a little more about how you envision that connection between theory and maybe what counts as theory in this case and, um, and practice and how that relates specifically to the development of character. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there, there are different ways of going about it and different examples, but one obvious one is, uh, for instance, the connection between the cardinal virtues and character improvement. So so the four cardinal virtues, as we all know, if you're listening to this, to this yeah. show, like are, <laughs> right, yeah, practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance, where the, 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 the last three are pretty, or ought to be pretty obvious what they mean, practical wisdom, is actually often interpreted in different ways, but the way I like it is the Stoic uh, interpretation, which is the knowledge of good and evil, what, knowledge of what is good and what is not good for you. Okay, so that's theory, meaning that uh, you you have a, a classification scheme of four cardinal virtues. Of course, they also have the sub-virtues and all that sort of sure. stuff, but there's four big ones. And in fact, there is an underlying, the underlying theory for both the Stoics and Socrates is that these are really four aspects of the same underlying thing. Um, that's the notion known as the unity of virtues. Uh, and then there are, there is of course an additional part of the theory is in fact, in the definitions themselves of the, of the four virtues, right? You know, because courage, well, what does that courage, what does courage mean? Well, courage is actually moral courage, not just the notion that you're going to just jump in and go into battle and face danger that's if you're doing that for the wrong reasons you're not actually being courageous as it turns out according to this definition of, of courage so that's theory right and the idea is that you should be using those those four cardinal virtues as kind of moral compass that everything you do it's going to be have to be practically wise although i i hate that that way of putting it but you know uh, uh, you know, pruden prudential, prudential was Frodemon. We'll just say you have to be Frodemon. Yeah, you have to be Frodemon. Sure. Uh, you also have to have courage. courage <coughs> you, know, you need to be temperate. You need to be just. Uh, so, and then, so that's the theory. Then, what happens in terms of practice? Well, you might, for instance, Musonius Rufus, the Stoic teacher of Epictetus, will tell you, you know, chances are you're not actually sufficiently. Uh, temperate. So you need to practice temperate, temperance. And he tells you how to practice temperance, right? He says you can do that at least three times a day, every time you sit for a meal, mm -hmm. because right? Because the, uh, the 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 amount of food that you uh, eat, that you eat, the amount of drink that you drink, the amount, you know, how you do it, etc. What what kind of food? He actually goes into details in some of his uh, essays on, you know, it's better to have food that doesn't require a lot of preparation that comes locally that it's nutritious etc cetera, etc cetera, right all that sort of stuff so those are ways that now food per se doesn't have moral value necessarily right, right. not obvious moral value 
but on the Stoic Socratic model, on the Stoic Socratic model, but it does. Yes, if you ask Peter Singer, he does have more. Yeah, right. But you use that as a way to practice temperance. Another example might be, for instance, you know, so suppose that I, I find myself deficient in the sub-virtue of generosity. Right? I'm not generous. I, I think I have this idea that I'm not generous enough. Well, how can I practice that? Well, there's a number of ways. For one, for instance, I could decide to get into the habit in the morning before I leave the house, uh, putting some change in my pockets and then give it to the first homeless person that I encounter, no questions asked, right? Initially, this will feel a little awkward. I might even question whether that is actually a good thing to do or not. But then if I keep doing it over and over and over, as Aristotle will say, it becomes habit and yep. it becomes second nature. And now you've trained yourself to practice generosity, right? Yep. So, so that I think is a, a decent way to understand or to uh, capture the, the, the notion that theory and practice are related and also that the proportion is far more practice than theory. The theory is not that difficult. It's not rocket science, right? Uh, well, and, unless you're trying to build rockets. Yes, unless you're trying to build rockets. <laughs> True. So, um, so you need the theory because without the theory, then the practice becomes blind. You know, you're practicing what? For what reason? To what, what, what aims? You know, who's going to tell you whether you're going to go wrong or not? Even when Seneca, for instance, tells you, to pick a role model for in order to improve your character to to see if you're doing well he says explicitly um in order to see if, if what whether something is crooked you need you need a straight ruler right mm -hmm. so you need a, a and the straight ruler here is the theory it's because it tells you where you should right. be where you ought to be right and and then you practice so that you get as close as possible to that so does that answer your yeah, question. no, I think that's good. I think that's good. It's probably a good way to connect it. And I, I just point out, it sounds a little bit like learning how to play the flute or something. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we can bring us back happy. to that point. Um, All right, yeah, my friend. So, yeah, this has been great. And um, I look forward to the opportunity to discuss some of these things a little bit more. And maybe I can get a little nerdier absolutely uh, when, we're, when we're face to face i'm looking forward to it so uh people we've uh, done it again another hour of practical philosophy if you want to keep learning about how philosophy can change your life the next episode of this show will feature a conversation with returning guest matt sharpie on his new book stoicism bullying and beyond how to keep your head when others around you have lost theirs and blame you that's a long subtitle, but it's clearly well, very kind of like the story of Alcibiades. And, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to join us for that conversation with Matt, uh, you can do so on live on Wednesday, November the 2nd at 6 p.m. Eastern time, which is going to be very early on in the morning for Matt, who is in Australia. Yeah. To register for that event, go to meetup.com and look for the Global Agora. In the meantime, if you wish to hear past episodes of Philosophy as a Way of Life, go to anchor.fm forward slash philosophy as a way of life, or check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. And with that, Rob, I'll see you next time. Stay yep, safe. Sounds great. Enjoyed it. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Mm -hmm.